0: You know those moments where you think, I wish I would have learned this in school? Those are the topics that we love to talk about. Join me each week as I interview experts sharing their strategies for solving problems that us young adults will face throughout our 20s and 30s. So what are you waiting for? If you want new episodes about adulting advice every Monday, hit that follow button. I remember being so furious with my dad because I felt like I was the only 16-year-old in my friend group that had to pay for their own car insurance. Looking back now, I really appreciate him making me handle my financial responsibilities early on. Don't get me wrong, I still take advantage of my parents picking up the tap at dinner or paying for a hotel at a family vacation, but I pay my own bills and it makes me feel so empowered being financially independent. This was the first step towards my parents seeing me as financially mature. Maybe you're someone that's been taking care of yourself since you were a teenager. Or you might be feeling guilty that your parents are still financially supporting you. I'm here to tell you there is nothing wrong with being a young adult and getting support from your parents. Life is expensive, and I don't think it's a smart idea to rack up credit card debt just to try to prove that you can pay for your own things. Although the financial support may be nice, I know you want to be seen as mature enough to make your own money and handle it appropriately. That's what our conversation is about today. How do I move towards this goal without making a huge mistake? How do I gain trust from my parents? My friend Clifton Corbin is going to share some advice as he's gone through the journey himself. After making a mess of his finances in his early 20s by racking up debt and destroying his credit, his parents lost faith in him. Luckily, he turned things around and eventually earned back trust with his parents. If you're looking for what you should do and honestly, what you shouldn't do in your own journey, this is a great place to start. We also talk about how to stop trading your time for money, how to know when you're ready for kids and how to maintain your identity whenever you become a parent. If you're a listener of the show and you haven't left us a rating and review, we'd really appreciate it if you did. If you're new, welcome. Sit back, relax and let's learn something new. I hope you enjoy my conversation with the basement DJ, PTA chair and author of Your Kids, Their Money Clifton, Corbin.
1: Thing is, I don't get to use it as much as I used to. Since COVID, my wife's been working from home, so she actually gets the space. Really? I often to now. Yeah, so I kind of, I only rent this space when she's not using it. She happens to be out of, the, out of the city right now receiving an award for some work that she did, so I've got access to it. So I get to come down here, but still one of my favorite spaces. You guys got to be a power couple, aren't you? Well, you know what? They say it all the time. One of the best moves you can make is finding a partner that, supports you and actually makes it work. One of the most expensive things you could ever do is split up with your partner, whether that's with a partner that you're married to or not. I've seen how having the right partner truly helps build you up and lift you up. My first real job, my first career when I started working, I wouldn't have had it if it wasn't for my wife. I could say that without any hesitation. So this job, I had to do an assignment to get it. It was for a business analyst role. So you had to like do all of these different pieces. And I was looking at the assignment and I'm like, one, they're looking for free labor. They're asking me to do a project, which isn't a project. They're asking me to actually do the work. They want me to actually finish this thing. Second, the questions like these things would have templates. Like I know the way that the business works and that there would be a certain way and format that everything should look. And I was like, I don't know what they want. I know what I'd want to say, but I don't know how they'd want to present it. So I, just, I was being very negative, to be honest. I was just like, I don't want to do this. Screw this. Forget this. I don't want to do this. And my wife now, my girlfriend then, looked at me. She's like, you're going to do it. I was like, no, nope, not doing it. She's like, no, you're doing it. And I was like, fine, right. totally petulant child. Like, fine, I'll do it. And I left it to the last minute. So I did like the all-nighter thing, which again, I was like in my late 20s at that time. So I did the all-nighter thing, got the job. While I was working in the job, yeah. I actually found... So I did do the project and the project was a project they had already had done. And I looked at the pieces, the templates that they got, that they had done for this. And my mirror, theirs, like almost identical, mm-hmm. like the words, not saying that they took mine and used it. It was just, I nailed it. I had it almost exactly like the way they wanted it, which is probably why I got the role. But I wouldn't have done it. I really, I was so against doing it for whatever reason. I just felt like I don't want to do this. I'm not going to do it. But she pushed me. She, and that's, that's kind of how it's been. It's always been us supporting each other. I know we'll get into me being a stay-at-home dad, but part of the benefit of me being a stay-at-home dad was there were roles that she wanted to take that were outside of the city. If I was working and she was working, it just wasn't feasible. There was just too much challenge there with childcare and all the rest. So I was able to do it. We were able to take those roles and those were promotions for her. Those were stepping stones for her. Those were chances for her to move up in her career. And all that was possible because I was able to hold things down at home. Not saying that, you know, if I wasn't a a stay at home dad, I wouldn't be trying to hold things down and support her. It just gave us even that much more flexibility for her to take something on that required her to do quite a bit more commuting. So much can be said for finding that partnership. And I'm not just talking about financially, I'm talking about emotionally. I'm talking about that feeling of connection, that feeling of support, that feeling of, as a couple, I like how you called us a power couple. I would never use that term myself, but just that feeling of, as a team, we can do more together than we could have ever done separately. Definitely.
0: I think that, you know, one plus one equals three concept with couples like that. You know, the best ones are, they make each other better in different ways. Just like your wife pushed you. My girlfriend does the exact same thing. She challenges me. She pushes me. She supports me. She has a different skill set than I do. And hopefully I'm the exact same way to her as well. So yeah. Clifton Corbyn, man, I've been waiting for this conversation for a while. You and I met two months ago at FinCon and just really hit it off. And I've been wanting to cover a lot of the conversation that I think we're going to have today, particularly, am I ready for kids? You know, I'm excited from a a stay-at-home dad perspective, what your thoughts are on that and flushing some of that out here. But let's start in a really obvious spot and work chronological as well. You defined yourself growing up as a money curious kid. You asked a lot of questions. You learned a lot, especially in the earning and savings realm. And I love that you did all these traditional things like you had a lemonade stand, mm-hmm. you had a, a newspaper route. But one of my favorites is this wholesale oil business. Oh man, that can, was my favorite too. Can you expand on that? What, <laughs> how did you get into like wholesaling oil and paint a picture of that?
1: Sure. So, like I said, money curious and earning is always something that I was just, I just wanted more money. Like, I was just so curious about it. I remember I was was young and I was like, the two jobs I want to have, the two businesses I wanted to have was bank and insurance company, because both of those companies, people just give you money. You have to provide some services, but you just get money. But, anyways, the wholesaling oil. So, my dad at one point left teaching and went and opened up a, a mechanic shop. And then he, you know, he was doing oil changes. And at one point, he and I had a conversation and he basically said, how would you feel about buying the oil for these oil changes? And it was his idea. I wish I could have said it was my idea, but it was his idea. He's like. Did you give an age to that? What, what oh age gosh. were you? I'm guessing it was probably about 11 or 12. Wow. I'd have to go back and look, but I, it was preteen for sure. There wasn't a teenager at the time. Good
0: for him for presenting that uh, opportunity that yeah, early yeah. on.
1: Yeah. So he, like he already, like this was his business that he was running. And at one point he even said like my business was more profitable than his at times. But he basically said, here, give me some of the money that you've made from all of your different ventures, because I had quite a few, as you mentioned, and buy a case of oil. When I do an oil change, we'll use the oil from that, but I'm going to charge a retail price for it, and then you get the difference. And then we'll take some of that money and buy the next case of oil, and we'll do that, and we'll do that. For that period of time, actually for my entire youth, I never received an allowance, I received a dividend. I received a payment from that oil business. And it was one of those things that was kind of self-sustaining And that once I put that initial investment into buy that first case, the next case was bought by that first case. And I was just able to do that and do that. It was a great little business and a great way of demonstrating, hey, there's ways of making money where I'm not trading time for money. So that mm-hmm. was an eye opener for me. And like you said, earning and saving was kind of where I was at when I was young, not to date myself too much, but we're getting close to where the interest rates were when I was that bad age. Which is wild. Didn't you say it was like 14 or 15% like just nuts. for
0: having some high interest savings account? And and most listeners on the show being probably 30 and under would have no idea that banks would pay out double digits, let alone like anywhere close to that.
1: <laughs> it was not Just the other day, and it just makes me look like a hoarder more than anything. But I found that bank book that actually had the the statements in it. And I, I was looking, I was like, I was getting like double digit, like 10, 20 and more payments and interest for doing nothing other than just keeping my money there. So it really opened my eyes to the value of saving and compound interest, which was great at a very early age. And again, this was just me earning because I was so curious. I was always eager to learn how to earn more and get more money. And I wish I would have had a little bit more exposure to investing as opposed to just putting money in. And it kind of felt like an investment because I was getting interest payments. So I mentioned it when I, I wrote in my book about how it's kind of like an investment, but it's not really, an event. It's, it was kind of on the fence. I wish at the time I would have had, you know, a mentor come up to me and be like, well, here's what else you could do to, you know, maybe even bump that up a little bit more or diversify what you have. Because at the time, I think I might have bought maybe a GIC or something. I, I didn't know what I was doing. I was at that a, point. The GIC? Oh, so for us, it would be almost like a treasury bond. Oh, gotcha. Day. Yeah, gotcha. so up here, it'd be similar to a treasury bond. It was like government insured certificate, I think. So it's like a treasury bond. So you're getting like a, a guaranteed return for a set amount of time that you keep your money in this investment. But it's it's peanuts, like it's nothing. But at the time, again, I didn't know what I was doing. I was preteen and buying investments, which was great. I'm a teenager. I've got money in the bank. I'm learning a little bit about interest, but it was still a little, it was too, again, I, was, I didn't have enough of the knowledge. I didn't know. Sure.
0: Yeah. It sounds like actually your parents set you up really well. And of course, I mean, this is the whole premise of your book too you're going to have blind spots and it's going to be hard to teach everything, especially around the concepts of money. I mean, of course, earning and savings, but then you mentioned investing and also debt. And we're going to get into that story here in a minute as well. But there are some even more macro concepts that are hard to teach, like risk. Like That is just, where do you even start with something like that? But I do believe that your parents set you up pretty well looking back at, at some of it, and if you're probably bell curving it, you're definitely on the, the plus side of- Oh, for sure. Financial literacy with parents. And that's actually really cool seeing where your parents came from. You know, you're a first generation Canadian. They were immigrants that came to Canada I think your dad, he started out as a mechanic and now he's a teacher or was a teacher. Right. What a wild guy. He's like 70 something and he's getting his PhD right now. Very cool. And yeah. then your mother worked for a nonprofit and a right. soup kitchen. Yeah. I, you talk, of course, a lot about your dad. And honestly, you mentioned just briefly, maybe a couple of sentences in your books about this like story with him and how he actually decided to come to Canada. And like there was like an immigration form, got extra copy or something. Does he give him more elaborate version of that story whenever he tells you this
1: story? So this is a story he told me just recently. I don't even think I had the full details. So yeah, so my, my my dad was a skilled laborer, moved here using those skills to to kind of immigrate to Canada. My mom came, they both went to university. My dad became, he's always been an academic. He used skilled labor to kind of find his footing and get into the workforce. My mom worked as a, an executive director at a soup kitchen slash shelter. So very service oriented, both of them. But yeah, my dad's story with regards to immigrating, yeah, he, and again, the story is, it's still new to me in that it wasn't really a thing that he had planned to do, but there just happened to be other people in his circle who were immigrating and that one person had like an extra form and he's like, do you want this? And he was like, okay. So he just kind of filled it out and saw what happened, but it was never the intent, I think, because again, he, both of them, both my mom and my dad, they both saw the value of leaving and building a, a home and a family. Outside of a small nation, just because of the opportunities that would be there for mostly for the family, but also for them. But I don't know. At that age, he would have been fairly young. This would have been back in the 60s. You know, the opportunities were were there. But I don't know. Again, as a young adult, and I'm speaking to a bunch of young adults in your audience, I can't even fathom that being like, I want to leave everything that I know, all of my network, all of the supports that I have, and go figure this out somewhere else. We talked a moment ago about risk and how do you teach risk? Well. When I look at that, I'm like, it's so interesting. Cause from a investment perspective, my dad was very risk adverse. But from a life perspective, like I can't think of a bigger risk than like uprooting your entire life to go to a foreign land where you have no supports and then just seeing how it all works out. And you hear these stories, like hear these immigrant stories all the time. And I'm like, you know, that's that's phenomenal. But it also highlights how risk is different, right? What your risk tolerance is in one realm is potentially very different than it is in a different realm. So as you said, teaching risk is challenging, but I think we all have examples of when you know we've been risk adverse and when we've been risk takers, and I think all of that can go just to let you know where you kind of fit on that on that spectrum, especially when we're talking investment, which is a different perspective. But it all kind of fits like how comfortable do I feel taking a risk with my money, knowing that you know hopefully somewhere it's there when I need it, but long term, ideally, we've made money with it. So yeah, no, he's got some great stories. Yeah,
0: it it seems like risk around money is in this separate category kind of all together. Like I have very risk open friends that, you know, do a lot of action sports or whatnot, but they are very uncomfortable in the money space and very risk averse for that particular reason. And maybe it's just lack of knowledge. I'm not entirely sure.
1: I think there's a few things there. So one, yes, the knowledge, the understanding what it means to, you know, invest, what have you, like you need to have a a good sense of what that means and how you can mitigate some of that risk. I think the other part is just, there's a concept of your money script. What are the things that you tell yourself with regards to money? So I'll use myself as an example. So my parents immigrated to a new world to earn money. They were successful. So the money script I have is that taking a little bit of risk can benefit you. I've seen it. It's been demonstrated for me. So the script I have running in the back of my head is very much a growth mindset. If I take these risks, it will pay off for me. And maybe that's kind of why I was more comfortable, you know, leaving work and becoming a stay at home dad. And again, as a youth, I always had these opportunities of making money and it was always successful for the most part. My early forays into making money have always kind of worked out for me. I didn't have a situation where I tried to start something and it was a massive failure and I was indebted because of it. So I've got all these data points showing me that taking these, whether they be big or small risk, whatever you want to call it, all these data points showing me that it's worthwhile, but flip that and have a different scenario, have someone else who had a very different upbringing. Maybe they struggled a little bit more. Maybe their family didn't have as much. Maybe they didn't know where their next meal was coming from. It's going to be a lot harder for them to say, I'm going to take some of this money that I've worked so hard for and invest it. And that's kind of where my dad was. I think both my parents were with regards to investing money in that they came from little So then to take what they've already earned and then risk it, they weren't keen on that. Now, they did do a lot of real estate investing because there's a tangible asset there and they could see it, they own it, they have it, they could take advantage of it. So what you tell yourself and how you frame everything has a lot to do with where you will be on that risk spectrum.
0: Crazy, some of the scripts that get passed down and how that can affect your child. And that, that's kind of something that really terrifies me, I think, about <laughs> parenting. But at the same time, it's kind of exciting as well, too, because you got the other side, the inverse side to that and all the things that you taught and how you help them really get a good launching path into life or into adulthood. But of course, we talked about a little bit. Your parents were great in some areas around financial literacy, earning, savings, etc., but they weren't good in some other areas. And one of those areas is debt and the conversation around debt and really understanding debt. And there is no better story to illustrate kind of the crash and burn of that than your college days and, and the, the credit card issues. Do you want to expand on this story a little bit, kind of walk us through what happened and, and some of the learning lessons from it? Sure, and I
1: love how you use the term crash and burn because that was very much my experience. <laughs> so yeah, I, got off, I went off to university thinking, you know, I know how to make money I'm good, I'm going to get this degree and I'll be good to go. You know, the first couple of days you see those credit card stands on on campus, you're like, well, as a young adult, that's the next step, right? I need a credit card. This is the thing that adults use. I got my credit card. I said to myself, it's for emergencies. But very quickly, I stopped using it for emergencies. What one thought was an emergency turned into everything is an emergency because I want it right now. So I used my credit card very poorly. I used it for consumables, buying that new album that just dropped going out for a couple of drinks with my friends and I did that quite a bit. So I I wasn't using my credit card responsibly and then I also wasn't paying my credit card. You know, you can pay a credit card, you could use the the minimum payment, which is what I would do, but that just means the amount that you always just growing and growing and growing exponentially. Like that's the compounding of interest in effect right there. So my credit card bills were getting bigger and bigger. And instead of being, you know, responsible and mature and saying, okay, I've got to deal with this. I did the exact opposite. And I said, well, I'm just not going to open those envelopes. I'm just going to pretend they don't exist. And I'm just going to get another credit card because if I get another credit card, then I've got more money to use and I got more money to spend. And again, when I say I was using my credit card poorly, like I was having a conversation with, with some students recently. And I was talking about how, like, I remember taking the cash advances from one credit card to pay the bill of another credit card and I wasn't even paying the full bill I was just paying the minimum so my balance on my one bill is growing the balance on the second bill is growing I'm paying additional fees and my interest is accumulating even faster because I'm doing a cash advance so unlike when you purchase something on a credit card if you do a cash advance the interest payment happens the moment you take the cash out of your ATM as opposed to waiting until the end of the month when your bill hits so the interest is accruing even faster when you say crash and burn like I said it was it was terrible like the bills just it's viraled, it went to collections. And I think that's when things got bad. Surprisingly, it wasn't when I had access to the credit card. It's when the card went to collections. So at this point, I'm outside. I'm out of university. I graduated. Hooray. I'm now trying to find a job. I get a job. This is shortly after the tech bubble burst. So it's not the best job. I end up doing like call-in tech support for computer tech support. because It's kind of just a fallback skill that I have. So I'm doing tech support, but now I've got collection agencies calling me. I'm doing tech support where you can call in. And a collection agency got my number. I can't avoid a phone call if I'm doing help desk work, tech support. So I'm getting calls from a collection agent while I'm working, telling them that I'm trying to work to pay off this bill, but you're calling me is jeopardizing my my work. Totally illegal. You can't do this, but they did it anyways. They started threatening. They're going to tell my employer how I'm a deadbeat. They're going to start calling everyone I know and tell them what's happening. They're threatening me on the phone while I'm at work trying to pay off my bills. Dark days, like just so depressed, so much anxiety, just trying to get my head right, just try to do the thing. Some point in there, this is right around the time I graduated, I was like, OK, well, I can't keep going down this path. I recognized that I had to fix this hole that I had dug for myself. So I got the job with the intent of fixing it, of paying off my debt. But it wasn't so much that it wasn't easy. It was just a dark place. It was not a place I would want anyone ever to be in where you feel like, you know, I went off to school to have this experience to hopefully put myself in a better position once I was done university to get a good job, to, you know, have a career, to make money and maybe start a family. I finished university. I have a job that I could have had before university because like I said, the bubble had burst, jobs were tight. I had to fall back on a job I'd already done. This is the job I'd done when I was in high school for the most part. So I'm doing something that I could have done without the degree and I'm being harassed by a collection. And you just feel the feeling of failure, the feeling of what have I done to myself? It was terrible, but I did work myself out of it. So I did pay off one credit card bill. Even I did that poorly in that I paid off the first credit card bill, but while I was doing it, I wasn't saving. I just put everything I had to that credit card bill. So when I was done paying off the credit card bill, I still had another credit card bill. I still had some student loans and I had zero money in my bank account. I dug the debt and then I got out of some of the debt and I even did that poorly. So eventually, you know, through learning about credit scores, credit reports, and the feeling of emptiness that I had after paying off that first credit card bill, I started to do some of the things that we talk about, like paying yourself first, saving. So it meant I paid off my next bills and my student loans slower. But by the time I paid off my second credit card bill, which was already in collections at the time, but by the time I paid off that one, I now had some money in the bank. Around that time, I also had to get like a secured credit card. So a secured credit card is basically what you pay a credit card company to give you a credit card, which sounds ass backwards, but it was what you have to do if your credit is already bottomed out. So my credit score was already terrible. So there was no, no credit company would ever consider giving me a credit card. But to build credit, you need to have credit. Yeah. So I had to get the secured credit card. So I'm using my secured credit card very much more smart than the when I previously but as I'm working, I'm saving a little bit. I'm building up that little, you know, savings account and I'm paying off my my credit card. Bills. So it was painful in that, like I said, before I went off to school, I had a savings account, I had money in the bank, I had enough skills to earn. I finished university with more skills, yes, but I'm working the same job and I've got debt. Now I have no credit score. I'm not even no credit score, I have a poor credit score. So I felt like those years, at least financially, were terrible. They sent me way, way back. If I could advise anyone, like, just don't do that. Don't don't spend those years putting yourself in a hole. And if you feel like you're already there, stop. At any point, I could have said to myself, I'm no longer going to keep going down this road. I'm going to open up this bill and face facts. I didn't do that. I never said, okay, I'm going to start living on a budget. I didn't do that. For the longest time, I just pretended those things weren't happening to me. I just kept living my life, going out on the town, doing whatever. But eventually... It all catches up with you, so at some point you have to kind of like wake up and.
0: Yeah, and I don't want to give you an out because I do think most of the ownership is on you, but at the same time, the credit cards are very predatory. The fact that they're on campus, they're—I don't see them on campus anymore. At least whenever I was at school, they're—they're they're not as. But I can't remember. Somebody else was on the podcast as well, and they they were talking about the fact that you walk in like your very first day and like all these credit card companies are just there. And they're like, Mm -hmm. yeah, you need a credit card, right? You got to buy books, right? Mm -hmm. And like, they're just like giving you credit cards. And then just the very tricky wording of minimum payments. Mm -hmm. Like that, that is predatory and the fact that oh, minimum payment. If I make that payment, then I shouldn't have any repercussions then. That should be the minimum that I'm required to pay. But that is not how it works. Like nope. That is how it snowballs very quickly. And the interest on interest on interest starts to accumulate. And all of a sudden you're like, I didn't spend $20,000. I only spent $10,000. Yep. And I've been making payments. How yep. How is my credit card balance at $20,000 right now? It's because you've been rolling a balance year over year over year.
1: Compound interest is one piece of financial knowledge that I feel like it's so interesting. It's so hard to comprehend exponential growth. It happens, but we don't see it. You hear that riddle sometimes, like if a, a lily pad's doubling every every day after a month, when will it have filled the half of the pond? And it's like one day before the end of the month. It's hard to see and understand exponential growth, but that's what can help you if you, you can use it to your advantage. But it very easily, especially with a credit card, because the other thing about the credit card is I don't think it was until, you know, I was done with all of my credit card woes that I really looked back and said, OK, so a credit card is a short term loan. No one ever explained it to me in that way. And whether they did or they didn't, to your point, like, I don't think I deserve it out. But I didn't have anyone come up to me and say, hey, listen, this is what will happen to you if you don't pay this back. This is what your credit card score will do to you or for you in the future whether it's buying a house buying a car starting a business even employment some employment will look at your credit score so no one at no point and I say it's crazy like someone will give you thousands of dollars in loans without ever walking you through what it means if you don't manage that responsibly which is why I'm always trying to talk to young adults and say listen you need to understand this like this is this is crucial this is critical information that you need to be able to not just understand, you kind of need to master it from the jump. Like you need to be able to manage it right away. Yeah, you can work yourself out of it, but why, why dig a hole for yourself that you don't need to? So it's one of those critical pieces of financial literacy that I really want more young people to take the time to understand. Like what is a credit report? What is a credit score? How does your credit score affect the interest payments you pay? Even on the credit cards you already have, credit cards can increase your interest payment based off of your credit score even after you have the credit card. So I'm sure it happened to me. I, I can't say it did or didn't because I was being so willfully ignorant about it, but the amount of interest I was paying on my debt could have gone up because I was not paying my debt even after I had already signed the the agreement to get my credit card. So there's so much pieces of information there, but it all comes back to understanding how credit works. And I, I implore young adults to to get their heads around it. Yeah. And we're experiencing it right now. Honestly, we saw mortgage rates
0: go from, you know, 3% to 6.5%. And that does not seem like a big jump, you know, in terms of, oh, buying a home. But once again, if you look at like how much home you can get on a 6.5% mortgage rate versus a 3%, it is a significant difference. Mm -hmm. And I think that is now coming to light. But I'm guessing. You also had some help with your parents digging out of that credit card hole. Like where did they step in and, and help and support and advise and get you all through this? What happened there?
1: In so much that I ended up moving back home with my parents, yes. But as far as financially, like actually pay money, no. So was that a stick it to you learning lesson?
0: Did they not have the funds to support you? What do you feel like?
1: It kind of goes back to some of the conversations we had before. Like in my mind at that point, When I was younger, I might have said, hey, can you help with this? But at that point, I'd reached a point where I was like, this is my debt. They didn't build this debt. This wasn't theirs. So at that point, I wouldn't have even fathomed asking them for help. It's so interesting that you say that because at no point, and this is I'm talking about stuff that happened to me 20 plus years ago, at no point in that whole time did I ever have the thought that you just asked me. At no point would I have ever considered asking my parents to help pay for the debt. And maybe that might have made sense in that it would have helped me get out of it sooner and then I could have just paid them back and then saved a lot of money. And maybe that would have made sense. Maybe consolidating in that way would have been the financially responsible thing to do. But in my head, it was mine to deal with. And wasn't there a little bit of friction too?
0: Like you got into this high class, I can do it on my own. And then all of this happened. And then you're like had a little bit of a falling out with your parents and had to resurrect to that a little bit? We did.
1: We did have a bit of a falling out. And you know what? It was, it was a bit about the finances, but it wasn't about the debt. So when I went off to school, I was very lucky, very privileged to have my parents say, we're going to pay for your university degree. We're going to pay for your undergraduate. So they had saved up money. They had done what they had to do to help pay for my undergraduate degree. I still needed some financial support from loans, but for the majority of it, for the most part, they said they can cover it. And I was like, this is great. But then in addition to, and I think this is just typical, but in addition to, you know, making a mess of my finances, I made a mess of my, my studies. I wasn't a diligent student. Like I just told you, I was using my credit card to go out for drinks on the town. so at the same time, I also was doing very poorly at school. Like I started off doing really well and realized that first year of university, I think back, I was like, man, it felt so easy. So I kind of like took my foot off the gas and then that second year university hit and I was like, oh no, this is a lot harder than I thought. But now I was trying to enjoy the social piece of life, being on my own. There's so much happening, right? Those first years of independence, it's really hard to manage what you're going to do. It's like, well, I've got this independence, but I have this one thing that I'm supposed to be doing, which is studying and getting my degree. And for me, I went off the rails really quickly. So what my parents said they were going to do, which was support me to, to finish my degree, They said they weren't going to do it because I wasn't fulfilling my end of the bargain, which was actually focusing on school. So they pulled back their financial support. And when they did it, we had just come back from a trip together. They dropped me off at school and they said, oh, just so you know, you're kind of on your own now. And I was like, what do you mean? And they're like, yeah, well, you're not really focused on school. You're not doing well in school. We told you we'd pay for your degree, but you're not really doing it. So you're on your own. I was pissed. I remember just being like, well, you couldn't have told me that before the trip when I just went with you and spent all of my, you know, my surplus capital. Like, I have no money right now. Like, I remember being, like, very, very upset with them. In hindsight, I realized that was ridiculously the exact right <laughs> thing. But at the time, I was just like, what is happening? Why is everything not going my way? Like, I'm, I'm messing up in school. I've got all this debt. My parents have cut me off. It all felt like it was going It was going to shit. I hope I'm allowed to use a few answers. Oh, yeah. Yes. C- cuss away, man. Okay. <laughs> Well, there's no other way to explain it at the time. So, you know, I had the financial support. It went away. And like I said, I'm in debt. So I got a job. I start working myself back into school. I'm doing a little bit better at school, but I was pissed at them. There's no other way to say it. Like I was not, I was not happy. We did not have a great relationship for a little while there. And I, I pulled back because I was like, well, you leave me out here to, to drown. Again, in hindsight, I realized like they did the exact right thing. Any financial support they were giving me was just more rope to hang myself. It was not helping me. It wasn't giving me. I had the independence, but I didn't have the maturity to manage it. Again, in hindsight, I could see that very clearly. In the moment, I'm just like, this stinks. This sucks. You know what? Where my boy's at? I'm going to get a drink. Like mm-hmm. this is this is the this is the move I made when that happened to me. So eventually, shortly thereafter, I kind of realized, okay, well, what is it that I want? I had that moment of clarity, if you will, but I asked myself, what do I want? I'm here. I'm in this other city, I've got friends, I've got debt. What is it that I want? And I realized, you know what? I want the degree I came here to get because I'm, I'm also a very driven person. Like it doesn't sound like this from this conversation. It sounds very much like I'm a fly by night, head in the clouds kind of person, but I'm actually a very, very driven person. Like when I know what I want, I go and get it. So I had that conversation with myself. I was like, what do I want? I was like, I want this degree. What do I want? I want to not be in all of this debt. What do I want? I want to have a relationship with my family. So I had that switch at that point and I started to act as if I wanted those things, right? Because it's all good and dandy to say you want those things, but if you're not actively doing the things to get that, then it really means nothing. It's it's meaningless. So I started focusing more on school. I got the part-time job. I started paying for myself. Again, my debt was a mess. There was really at that time, there was nothing I could have done about it. Maybe no, I take that back. There was something I could have done about it, but I chose to focus on my degree and just being a better student. And from that, I graduated, I got my degree and the relationship with my parents rebuilt itself. It's nice in that when it rebuilt itself, it rebuilt itself as I am now taking responsibility for my actions, which I didn't do. When they cut me off, when they said, you're on your own, it was because I was being a a child. But I eventually realized, no, I need to be an adult here. I need to do the things to achieve what I want. And our relationship changed at that point. I attribute a lot of the great relationship that we have and lines of communication that we have to the fact that they've always been willing to talk to me about money and about anything. Like they've never been something that they weren't willing to talk to me about. So I feel like knowing that they've always been there to talk to me and support me, maybe not financially, but to support me has helped me build a great relationship with my parents But I think once I made that switch and said, no, I'm going to start acting like an adult, not the child that I was acting like, the relationship built even stronger. My relationship with my parents now is phenomenal. We were chatting earlier that relationship changes as they get older and you now need to help support them a little bit. But it all stems from the fact that at some point I made the switch from being the child to being an adult. So our relationship has grown together in that way back to the question you asked me before about asking if they would have supported me financially, it might have stemmed a little bit from the fact that they had already cut me off financially and I wouldn't even think about going back to them financially. But I think it also is just the fact that at that point, I realized this was the debt that I made to ask my parents to pay for the drinks that I had while I was in university. Didn't make sense. That's on you. Yeah, no, it's a hundred percent on me. All of it. I take the blame for all of it. Like I said, the conversations I had with my parents when we were younger might have been about earning and saving, but it was on me to learn about the debt and managing debt and credit scores and what have you. So I take it all.
0: It's such a tricky time right in your mid-20s there as you're becoming an adult and starting to make some money. And I've had a job since like 14 or something. always worked the summers and job, job, like a, a W-2 employment. I also mm-hmm. was like always dog sitting or watering plants or things like that for the neighbors as well. But there's definitely a shift at some point in time from I am capable of making money, which I feel like is kind of first step, like go get your summer job and like be able to pay for some of your excess expenses to I can manage my money. Mm -hmm. Like I'm responsible and mature enough to make decisions. And hopefully your parents don't abandon you and they still act as sounding boards, Mm -hmm. but they need to move from teacher to advisor at some point in time, from mom and dad, protector of all to- mom and dad, we're here to support you, but we trust you. Exactly. And we know that you can handle this on your own. And there's a lot of gray in that. I, I don't know if there's this like 10-step process to become a mature adult with your finances. And then your parents give you a certificate at the end and they say, okay, now you can make your decisions. Some people you know, struggle the opposite way where they want to become mature and they want to become an adult with their finances, but they have either helicopter parents or parents that still don't believe that they're capable, regardless if they maybe are capable or they're not capable. I don't know. I'm, I'm still kind of struggling like how to help support people that are wanting some of that. Of course, if I feel like they're in a place that they can do it, awesome. But we all have space to learn in the financial literacy aspect as well. And of course, as a parent, like you don't want to see your kid crash and burn either. Yeah, you don't want to see like make some colossal decisions, especially with the amount of student loan debt that's out there now, the uh, mortgages that some people can sign. We talked about credit and how that can really mess you up for a decade plus moving forward if you've got to file bankruptcy. I mean, there is a lot of really, really substantial, impactful decisions that you can make that could really mess you up for a little while. But at the same time, eventually, you got to cut the financial umbilical cord and you
1: got to go out on your own. I agree with you. One of the things, so many pieces there that I want to jump into. I know, um, I, threw, I threw a whole lot out there. Like, I, I, I wanted to view as well. <laughs> you got me jazzed up, man. No, man, I hear you. Everything that you said there, I agree with wholeheartedly. The reason I talk about, you know, money and kids is because I want kids to make mistakes when it doesn't cause massive financial trauma down the road. So that's why I talk about Helping parents talk about this stuff and give their kids opportunities to practice this while they're young, while they're at home, while it won't cause massive trauma, like I said, down the road. With regards to that 10-step plan, you're right. I wish there was, and I'm sure I'm going to face this as well, but my philosophy as a parent has always been, if I do everything right, my kids will leave, which is a weird way to look at it, but that's the way I see it, right? Like if I do everything right, my kids will leave and they'll be able to be on their own independent, making their own money, making their own mistakes, and hopefully coming to me for support, but not to bail them out. You mentioned, you know, you don't want to see your kids crash and burn or like you want to see them succeed. You don't want to see them fail. You kind of have to let them at some point, right? So it's, that's what I said. If you could help, if you can push them along so they're making some of those mistakes while they're younger, and then when they're older, they're less likely to make them. That's great. But I think, My debt struggles, as much as they were painful for me and they, you know, they still bring some trauma when I think about it. Had my parents bailed me out of that, you know what would have happened? I would have just done it again. So you kind of have to let your kids have that freedom to make the mistakes that they're going to make. If that's how you choose to learn, then you have to go through those. Hopefully you can learn without that. Hopefully people listen to your podcast and other and find other resources so that they're not using financial mistakes as their means of learning. You don't need to do a trial and error to figure out how to manage your money effectively. That doesn't need to be the way. But if you choose that way, having someone coming bail you out isn't giving you the chance to learn, right? You need to do it on your own to figure it out. What I like to see and what I've Experience, and again, this is only my experience. I don't know if it'll happen for anyone else. And I outlined it when we were speaking previously. It was once I started to act in a way that showed and demonstrated my maturity, the relationship changed. It wasn't until I acted as a mature adult that the relationship changed from student teacher to not even student advisor, but to peers. We were on the same level because. When you ask, would I have asked my parents to bail me out? Would I have asked you to bail me out? Like, no, I would not ask my peer to bail me out of the situation. Would I ask them, hey, what's the best way for me to sort this out? Sure, I would come to you for advice, just as I hope you'd be able to come to me for advice. So that relationship changed because my actions changed. I think had I asked them to bail me out, it would have been, the reason it was so foreign for me is because it would have meant I was changing the relationship back to student-teacher. And I didn't didn't want to go back that way. And I think by showing that, no, this is my mind to deal with, I showed, no, we're at a different place in our relationship. And I think it's so critical. I've seen it with other families where that doesn't happen. And it causes problems, especially down the road, especially when you start talking about, and I know we're getting further into the future, but when we start talking about estate planning with our parents, that was something that was, I remember, and again, I've said, I've got a great relationship with my parents. And at one point, Within the last few years, I I went to my parents and I was like, where's your will? I I just asked them. I was like, where's your will? I'm like, well, we don't have one. I was like, okay. No, it wasn't even so much that they didn't have one. They had a will, but it had my one grandmother who's since passed in it. And my sister and I, who are my parents' only children, were not born. So the will that they had was done sometime back in the early 70s. And I was like, this isn't good. And it wasn't even... I didn't ask them with the intent of, hey, I want your inheritance. It was, hey, I want to make sure that all of the pieces are in place so that you can age the way you want. I yes. came with it and I'm very much, I'm trying to love and support you to get what you want in your later years. That conversation could not have happened in the way it happened had we not changed the relationship because I've seen that same type of conversation occur where the relationship has not changed and it's still very much teacher, student, parent, child, there's just a lot of friction there because the parent bristles thinking, well, why are you asking me this? What are you trying to get from me? What, it, like the relationship hadn't matured enough for that conversation to occur. And that's why it's so important that this conversation, this, this maturity eventually happens. This relationship changes from that to that pure where we're on the same level. So I'm, when I have a conversation about how you want to age and who's your power of attorney and all of these conversations that we may have to have with our parents, you want to make sure that your parent realizes where you're coming from, they're not looking at you as like, why would this child be asking me these questions? They're like, oh, this person who loves and cares about me is asking me because they need to know that I am going to be taken care of in my later years. So there's so much need for that maturity to happen. And that's just the relationship piece. There's just other advantages. I know we're going to talk about having kids, but if you have a child just coming up with a scenario here, if any of my parents or any of the grandparents are listening, I'm not talking specifically about anyone, but if you have a child and your parents are watching them, they need to know that you are the authority in that relationship. Even if the parent, the grandparent is watching them, you are still the authority in this parent-child relationship. There will be friction there if you have not reached a relationship maturity with that parent, now grandparent, right? They need to understand that that's how this whole thing works. So there's other reasons why you need to get to that point. But I I I wish I had the, the answer, but the only thing that's worked for me was demonstrating that I'm at that point of maturity where I'm showing, I'm not saying, I'm showing, hey, listen, I'm managing my money responsibly. I'm going to go and find a place to live on my own or whatever it is. It's that demonstration of maturity. And to do that, you now need to then seek the resources to make sure you're able to act responsibly with your money, with your career, with your relationship.
0: Hi there, podcast listeners. This is Kyle with the Struggles Real team. You know, the better looking the Peters boys. One big, big favor to ask. Please take a moment and give us a five-star review. Justin is an incredible host, and he's bringing so much value to the self-development space. We want to help young professionals figure out this whole adulting thing. And by leaving us a rating, you can help us do it. Thank you. You're the reason that we continue to do what we do. Now, back to the show. Well, Clifton, I like a lot of this in this conversation. Of course, I think this is really helpful. And we've gotten through kind of your young adult age. And then there's this part of your life where you decided to be a parent. And it seems like it's probably one of the most joyful aspects or titles that you carry, like being a father. And I'm guessing Some of that has to do with your dad. You talk about your dad a lot in the book. And I could tell from afar that you idolize him Mm -hmm. and that you probably were always thinking about being a dad. You wanted to be the same kind of person your dad was to you, to your son and daughter as Mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. And I'm only saying that from perspective as well. I watched Cheaper by the Dozen at 12 or 13 years old. And that's when it clicked with me. I was like, I want to be a dad. That was the first time for me where I was like, that is something I can be. And of course, I've gone through my stints of professional sports player. I wanted to be all kinds of different things in my life, but I've never wavered from wanting to be a dad since watching that movie. And I'm really, really excited about it. But something I often, I am often thinking about, and I'm hearing my friends as well as this kind of question is like, how do I know when I'm ready to be a parent? Like it is like, (laughs) like, I'm like, yeah, I want to be a parent, but like, I'm not ready right now that it just seems overwhelming in a sense. So can you talk me through or walk me through a little bit of like your feelings whenever you were deciding to become a parent? Like, did you know, did you get this like ready player one? Like, yeah. all right, I'm 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 now ready to be a parent. <laughs> Let's make it happen. <laughs> what What happened?
1: So I think I'm similar to you in that regard. Like I've always wanted to be a parent. Like again, you're right. I do idolize my dad. I love my mom. They gave so much love and care and I've always wanted to like pay it forward or pass it on to the next generation. So I hate even telling the story, but the first time I went out with my now wife, it was just a birthday thing. We were just having like drinks. It was just the two of us, and I think I mentioned to her at the time, like I, I want to be a dad, and I don't advise anyone start talking about being a parent when you're. It wasn't. It wasn't officially a date. It were just having drinks. I think she was already. You dated. weren't even on date number one. We weren't even <laughs> on date number one. I think she was actually seeing someone at the time, so I really like. It was obvious that we had a, 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 a connection because I opened up pretty quickly. But I did mention on that first outing that like a dad was something that, I, it was, was, something that was pretty front and center for me. Oh gosh, I, I'm not going to tell anyone when they're ready. My wife and I, we thankfully, and I look back now and I, I, like I said, thankfully we had a couple of years before we even started trying to have kids. And I won't lie, those years anchor us now that we have kids. Like we can look back on those years and be like, Thank goodness! Like as much as I love my kids and I love my kids, it's hard. I won't pretend that it's not. It's a lot of work. I was saying the other day, like I can't, I can't believe how much of my mental space goes into trying to figure out what's going on in their mental space. Like it's just, you see the the multi billionaires, and you're like, there's a reason they don't have kids. It's because they just focused on them, and they you can't like your mindset changes, and I think it changes for the better, and that you're now focused on other people. I think part of the reason why I focus so much on not just my kid but on kids in general is because I'm a parent I have relationships with my friends kids and I have like the nieces and the the nephews and I realize and I recognize how much good you can put into the world by supporting that next generation so it's you're right it's for me it's been from early days I've known I wanted to have my own kids as far as when my wife and I were ready, we just kind of knew. I wish I had some more profound thing to say here. That's what everyone says, though. But it, was just, I feel like. it was like at one point we were, we were happy doing our own thing and enjoying it and feeling like we, you know, we were on top of the world. Like we had two incomes, we were living downtown, we had all of the advantages of, you know, young professionals. And then at one point we we're like, do you want to do the next thing? Do you want to try something different? I think we just hit a point where we're just ready to give more of ourselves to something else. So that's there was no light bulb. I know, you know, my wife and I we joke we make all of our big life decisions while we're in the ocean. And I remember we were in the ocean talking about, so when we get back from this trip, I think we're in Okinawa, Japan. And we're like, when we get back, I think it's time. And we're like, yeah, I think it's time. So wow. we just knew. But the one thing that I, I think really helps us now, and I think it really helped us then is that we had multiple years. As a married couple, we were together before we were married, but we had multiple years while we were married, after we'd made that commitment to each other, where we were together. It was just us. There was no other entity in that space because now, and we talk about it often, like now we're competing for attention for each other. Like we're a moment of uninterrupted conversation happens when the kids are in bed or if we're lucky enough to get out together, maybe for a walk or something. There's so much competing time for our attention. But we built the relationship and we have that to fall back on. That said, we also recognize and we've seen this many times that once kids come into the picture, now you've got, you know, so many different communication lines that you're working on. There's different responsibilities. You can very much feel like ships passing in the night. And I get that. It happens. But it's really important. And I have to attribute this again to my wife. She's, she's the better of the two of us for sure. And that she's recognized that it's important that we continue to build our relationship because it's very easy. Like these years where our kids are here, they're going to go by very quickly and it will be very easy for us just to lose connection with each other. It it, it happens all the time because you're just, you're just dealing with the logistics of managing the house and dealing with the homework and getting food on the table. And, you know, she's got her career and I'm starting to work on, you know, my books and all these things. So we're all working and doing all these other things, but if we're not actively and you have to be active with it. We're not actively trying to spend time with each other. We're not actively trying to grow together because you are still growing. Like your likes and your dislikes are changing. I remember my wife recently identified, she's like, I think I'm an introvert. I'm like, yeah, you, you've become more introvert. Like she's always been a bit of an introvert, but she's become more introverted over the last couple of years. So she's still growing and maturing in my shoes. I'm like, I used to be more outgoing and I'm becoming more introspective. So I'm still changing. But when we met, I was the very outgoing, you know, social person and she was, you know, also very outgoing and social. So if the two of us met now, we're meeting and from a different place. But if we don't spend the time to reconnect and talk to each other and talk about how, you know, we now feel like we have different needs. Like I now more so than ever, it's probably a lot related to the pandemic, but I now have more time where I feel like I need to be by myself, where I need like solitude. Prior to the pandemic, I don't think I ever would have articulated that or even thought I needed it. But let's say I don't articulate that. I don't tell my wife this is now something that I need that can cause a rift. Well, why does he not want to spend time with me? Well, it's not because I need something, but she doesn't realize it's something that I need. And now we've got friction and now we're starting to drift apart. So it's important that even after the kids come, especially after the kids come, you find a way to grow together, if at all possible.
0: Yeah. I don't know if that was reassuring or if that <laughs> that made me more worried. I, I mean, there's a couple of different cruxes here. First, there's the financial aspect. Things are getting so expensive. Yep. And young adults, not only with kids, but you see it with houses. All of the trends of home ownership have moved years and years down the road from yep. where they were 40 years ago. And and I'm guessing a lot of that has to do with finances. Yep. If my friends could afford to buy a house right now, I think a lot of them would buy a house right now. Same with kids. I think marriage and kids have also moved further back. And, you know, now they're approaching like the average age of like 30 and, you know, into 35. Once again, I think a lot of that is financial pressure, putting another kid in the home and now having to feed somebody and also childcare expenses are just outrageous, all kinds of things. So getting over that hump, another thing is the independence. Like so many people are worried that they're gonna lose their their independence, both as an individual and as as a couple. It sounds a little reassuring from your end that you can still carve out time as long as you're intentional with that. You have to be intentional, yes. to, To do that. I think one thing that a lot of the high performers that listen to the podcast are worried about when it comes to kids is sacrificing their career identity for parenthood. They're very afraid of that, myself included. Not only from the sense of I won't have time to dedicate to my career, but Am I going to be more interested in being a parent and a mm. good dad than I am going to want to be this like rock star career, superstar, high performer as well? I don't know. I'm working with that, but you are a very interesting case study of that because you were a high performer at work. You mentioned you were an analyst and a business consultant and a manager, and you were managing multi million budgets at work as well. And then you decided to become a stay at home dad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, walk me through that decision. Were you afraid to let go of your career identity to an extent?
1: Yes. Leaving work was one thing that my wife and I, we had always talked about. We wanted to have a parent who stayed at home. We both had that growing up and we recognized the value of that. And we also realized financially it almost made sense. It probably didn't make total sense, especially once the kids are in elementary school and there's less childcare associated with us being at work. But we also saw it made financial sense, but more we wanted to have someone home to manage the home, just being able to have someone at home to make sure the home is running comfortably and the kids are supported. And they have, my wife talks often about those times when you leave school, there's like a brief window there where you want to talk about what happened at school, good, bad, ugly, whatever. But once that window closes and it's short, it's very brief. It's like five steps after you've left the school. If your parent's not there to have that conversation, Or it's like three seconds after you get off the school bus. If your parent's not there to have that conversation, you bottle it up, you move on. So we wanted at least one parent to be there to support the kids when they came home from school. That was just something that we've always wanted because we had it. We felt like it was necessary. That being said, leaving work was, I was lucky in that I was able to do it in a way that I always knew I could go back if I needed to. Like I had that as like a fallback. But leaving work, yeah, no, I I was terrified about what I was leaving behind. Right before I left, I was being kind of groomed for management. And I remember my manager at the time saying, you know, by this point next year, I want to make sure you have a couple mentees, like you should be mentoring a few people. And as a person of color, I I thought like this is a, a responsibility I have to bring up other people of color and give them opportunities to grow and thrive in this environment, which you know, it's not always easy to get into, it was, I was working for the provincial government, similar to a state government in the United States. And it's not always easy to get into those roles and those roles are, they're coveted in that, you know, you can get a pension. There's like a lot of long-term security that comes with it. So I was like, this is a great opportunity to help, you know, bring up some younger people into this role and mentor and teach. And it's something that I've, I've always wanted to, to give back. So letting go of my career, I was like, well, what am I doing? I'm, I'm not just letting go of what, you know, my earning potential and my, my pension, but I'm also letting go of the opportunity to bring other people up. And as you could tell, I care a lot about helping that next generation. So I felt like I'm, I am not making the best move here if that's what I really want, but I had the competing priorities of my family and making sure that they were okay. But I did it. And luckily after I did it very shortly after I did it, opportunities started coming to me that either they wouldn't have come to me had I not been out of work. Or I wouldn't have been able to take them on. So for example, a local nursery school in the area was struggling. They basically, they were talking about closing. My kids had gone there. I wanted my, my daughter to go there, but they just didn't have any business acumen to keep the doors open. And I was like, hey, I can volunteer in this space. And again, I'm helping uh-huh. the families in this community. I'm helping the kids in this community. So I went in and I volunteered. I helped give them the business plan, the communication plan. I ran it for a year I helped get some kids in the pipeline, make sure that the nursery schools could stay open. And it happened almost within a year or two of me leaving where I was like, oh, I'm still getting to use my skills. I'm using it in a different way. And I'm still able to give back and support and build community, just not quite the way I had expected. And now I'm doing you know, conversations with you and talking about financial literacy. So did things change when I left work? Of course, obviously, has my desire and drive to give back and support and use all of the skills that I've built over the last couple of years gone away, No, the opportunities are there. They're still there. They're actually, I find them even more rewarding in that, you know, I've got more autonomy and agency to do it in a way that I feel gives the most impact, probably more impact than I would have been able to do it in the organization that I was in. So things changed for sure, but not necessarily for the worse. It was, some of it was for better. I won't pretend that having the kids didn't take my attention away from work, there was a couple of years there. I remember my wife and I looking at each other when my daughter was probably four years old and we're like, I think we're out of it now. I think we're out of the fog. Because it's like at least, I don't know how many years that would add up to, but we just felt like we have no idea what happened. Like those years are just gone. Like they don't exist to us. We don't know what happened. They're they're gone. They're into the abyss. Are you, you,
0: are you talking like, I think your son is 10, your daughter's eight. Yes. So the year leading up to probably the birth of your son and then the yes. subsequent
1: four years yes. for your daughter. Six so years.
0: Yeah, this like six year span of just window. (laughs) My my mom my mom babysits, so we we have a lot of I've seen a lot of zero to fives come through my household. Sure, and I've seen a lot of parents deep in the fog. Oh yeah, you're in it. You're you're (laughs) in
1: it. Like you're 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 walking, but you're a zombie. You don't know what's happening. Like sleep training, eating. It's when they get to be a little bit more independent. You're like, oh okay, I can now interact with other adults. I could socialize again. I can, we can go out on a date. We could do these things, but there's a couple of years there that you kind of, I don't want to say you lose them because you're still, you know, you're still alive. You're still interacting with your kids. You're still building those memories. But as far as my career goes, those years were, there were some times where I was at work and I was nodding off at work. I was that tired at work. That is not going to help me in my career. It won't. I know if any of my, my previous managers are listening, they're like, oh, yeah, I remember that. And I was pissed because <laughs> it was not good. But I was sleep deprived. I, I had I did not have enough enough in the tank. It really does take a toll on you. I'm just being honest. Like, I know it could be a bit of a, a detraction to having kids. I don't mean it to be. I just want to be honest. There's so many pluses on the other side like the you know the relationship I have with my kids the the feeling I have of knowing that you know I'm giving back and i'm I'm doing these other things that help not just them but help their their school community help our neighborhood help our broader community all of those opportunities come from me knowing that I want to help not just them but other children so there's a lot of opportunities that have come from this but i I won't pretend that a lot of stuff has also been taken away you mentioned before about the finances and I Constantly, the other day, my wife's like, we need to buy a new coat for my son. And I was like, oh, come on. <laughs> it's nonstop. Like, they there's a huge expense there. So I get that concern of, like, adding another person into your family budget. There's an expense there. Don't pretend that there isn't. There is another expense. They need to be clothed. They need to be fed. There's going to be extracurricular activities that they want to participate in. There's a whole nother expense there. For us, what it meant was... I guess the term would be like fast fire, or like retire early kind of concepts. It's like, no, we're, we're in this for a little while longer. Like we will eventually hit some financial independent goals, but it's not going to be in the short term. It just can't be because we've got all these other responsibilities that we have to account for financially, whether that be their education, the amount of money that we've contributed to their financial saving plans or funds. If they weren't here, that'd just be going straight to our retirement funds, right? But we have to, you know, we want to set them up for success. So We are diverting some of our cash to set them up for success, which just means it pushes our financial independence back a little bit. We're fine with that. That's an equation that we're fine with totally, but everyone's going to be different. So I won't pretend that the financial piece isn't a factor. And I understand when people hesitate to add a child into their lives because of the finances. I don't know if for a lot of people, like the timing is never right, but you kind of make it work, like you figure it out. And, you know, when the child shows up, you you figure it out because it's what matters.
0: All right, Clifton. So I don't know if I feel more confident or less confident about being a parent, but I did get a sense of understanding that it's very okay to not have it all figured out before you become a parent. And reading your book and knowing a little bit of the story of your parents, and regardless of some of the gaps of knowledge they would have provided to you, they did a phenomenal job as parents overall as well. So really excited about that. But for the listeners that are new parents and or going to be new parents here in the near future, I was wondering if you had some general good parenting principles. And we can probably double click into some of the advice that you give in your book. But I feel like if you take a macro lens to some of that, it could be even applied to other areas outside of, of finances. Just creating curiosity in your kids and you know how that could help with engagement I also, I really liked this concept in the book where, you know, you were talking about finances and explaining things, but I think just explaining your rules and your decisions outside of finances too is a really great parenting principle as well. Is there anything else that you took away from obviously 10 years of parenting yourself and or reflecting while you're writing your book in terms of a couple of good principles for being a good parent?
1: Sure, I like how you said, you know, create curiosity in your children. You don't need to. Kids are naturally curious. So, you know, as far as a principal goes, and I'm no perfect parent, I wouldn't want to claim to be. But one of the things I like to do is just, you know, feed that curiosity. So when they're asking me questions, I think that's one of the challenges as a parent. You know, you're so busy. You can't ask your question. You're trying to get dinner on the table. You don't have time. But my, my one of my goals is to answer their questions. It seems simple. It seems basic, but it's not necessarily easy because, again, you've got competing priorities. There's lots of stuff happening. So I may not always be able to answer it in the moment. And truthfully, if you don't answer it in the moment, sometimes their their interest is waned and they move on themselves. (laughs) But I try my best to answer those questions, especially when it comes to things that might be hard for us to talk about as adults. So yeah, you just want to answer their questions openly and honestly. You want to make sure that you're feeding that curiosity and using that as a means to build your relationship. I mentioned it with regards to money, but it, it goes beyond money. It's really just making sure that when your child, you know, asks you something, even if it's something you're uncomfortable talking about, you still take the time to answer it. We all have a certain level of guardedness when it comes to our money. We don't necessarily feel comfortable talking about money. Our kids will pick up on that, but they'll also pick up on the fact that we trust them enough to talk to them about it. I, Mm. I talk a lot about how we want to build those open lines of communications with our children. One way to do it is to show them that you're willing to talk to them about things that might be even hard for you to talk about talking about money is one of them, talking about sex, talking about politics, all of these things that as adults, we sometimes put up a little bit of barriers between ourselves just to make sure that we're still able to interact socially and civilly. But with our children, they're coming at it from a much different perspective. They're just curious about how the world works. So I try my best to be very transparent with them. I talk to them about anything and everything that they ask me about I sometimes might use something like a, a framing question to kind of figure out where they're coming from. So for example, if a child were to ask you, how much money do you make? Are we rich? Are we poor? That question is a very broad question, right? so you might want to ask, well, why are you asking? Just to get a sense, like, Maybe it was something that came up in the playground. Maybe it's something that came up in the classroom. Maybe it was something they saw on TV. So you're just trying to get a bit of a framing. And it also gets you, you know, gives you a little bit of time to frame your answer as well. But it gives you a, a chance to figure out well what's the perspective that they're coming from. And then you can answer it in a way, again, that it's age appropriate, hopefully open and transparent in a way that will help, again, build that relationship. Because the more you talk to your kids, the more that you show them that you're open to answering their questions, it just shows that they have more chances to come to you as opposed to, you know, trying to find an answer from a friend or someone else. So if I had to give any type of, you know, broad overview of like what's one principle I try to do, it's be open, be honest, be transparent. The other thing, and this one's more specifically to money, I try to give them as many opportunities to practice doing the things that they might do out in the world while they're home with me so that I can give them a chance to kind of, you know, make the mistakes, fumble, figure it out while they have me as their coach to guide them along the way. So whether that be providing them allowance and letting them, you know, practice transacting and saving and spending or what have you, it's all chances for them to practice doing those skills and building those habits that they will need as adults. And that, again, it supersedes, it goes past just money, but any chance you can give your child to practice being an adult. I joke often that, you know, if I do everything right, I think I might have said this to you too. If I do everything right, my kids will leave. But they will leave and they will be ready to be on their own. So this is kind of my overarching framework of how I try to raise my kids. I try to give them opportunities to have that independence as much as possible, as early as possible. It, you, know, you have to guide where they are, engage where they are. My one child might be doing something before my other child. It's not age dependent. It's really about where they are and who they are. So. I'm constantly trying to give them more and more independence because I know that's the end goal is for them to be fully independent and be able to be on their own.
0: How is it now that your kids are a little bit older as well? Like it's got to be really cool to see your kids age. And honestly, I'm guessing you're 10 year old. You're probably close enough now that you have this sense of friendship.
1: It's wonderful. It's that same thing I was talking about, that independence. I was bringing them to school the other day and I realized I'm no longer dropping him off. He's kind of dropping me off. Like we get close to the school and he's like, all right, I'm, I'm going to go now. Like he's trying to get, like, he's trying to get the, he's separating, right? Like, then this is good. Like we went through the early phases of the separation anxiety where they didn't want to leave you. And now they're trying to get away from you quicker, which, you know, it can hurt a little bit. You know, you still, they're still your baby. They're still your child. But the connection hasn't gone. It's just changing. And they're just maturing and they're looking for more independence, which for me is a win. It's me seeing like, okay, they're comfortable being on their own. And I trust them to do these things. You know, maybe walk that last little bit to school by themselves. Without me, there watching them. I know they can maneuver their street crossings or what have you. I'm seeing the independence. And then it's the other part is, like you said, the friendship's there as well. I'm still their parent. I will always be their parent. And right now, my son's 10. So I'm parent first before I'm, you know, friend or anything. Yeah. There's times where it's like, hey, he will engage me to play a game in a way that I want to play as well. Like, yeah, when they're younger, sometimes the gameplay, it's like, I don't want to do that. But now (laughs) it's like, oh, you want to play this board game that I actually really like? Yeah, let's, let's pull it out. Let's do this. So yeah, the relationship, it, it changes. And that's just, that's just the nature. Like we talked about that earlier with my wife and myself, our relationships change as we change, but that doesn't mean they have to get more separated. You can still get together.
0: How's the uh, book editing process going? Because isn't your son involved in that while you're revising it?
1: Yeah, so the, the my second book is the revision of The Richest Man in Babylon and it came about because I tried reading it to him. So it's one of my favorite books of all time. I love this book. I think one of your previous guests mentioned it as well. Yeah, that's Uh,
0: Mason Bruchette, I think episode 71. He's a big fan of the book.
1: (laughs) It's a a phenomenal book. And I think the reason people like it so much is because it's, it's very easy to consume and it's not lessons. It's not like, do this, do that, do that. It's more, here's a story. Here's how it worked in my life. But it's written in a way that's fun. The only challenge was when I tried reading it to my son because it was written almost 100 years ago, his eyes just glazed over and he's like, I don't understand what you're saying. So I was like, okay, the book is now in the public domain. I was like, we can rewrite it. So I would read a couple lines to him. I would look at him and I'm like, do you understand what I just said? And he'd be like, nope. So I'd rewrite it and read it back to him. And I was like, do you understand what that is? He's like, oh yeah, no, I get it. I'm supposed to save some of the money that I get before I go out and spend anything. I was like, we've got it. We're, we're winning here. So I did that throughout the whole book. The other pieces I read is that I wanted to make it a lot more inclusive. The original yeah. version was... I don't know if you had a chance to read it yourself, but the original version, like every pronoun is a he, him. And I want, as much as I wrote it with my son, I want it to be a book that I will also be able to read with my daughter. And I want her to be able to see herself in it. And I didn't want it just to be like the spouses are the, the female characters. I wanted some main characters who also hold and contain some of that wisdom that we're trying to share with everyone to be female characters. So yeah, we, we, we wrote the book together. I'm hoping to release it in, uh, in the next couple of weeks. And he's super excited because his name's going to be on the on the cover. So after seeing my first book come out and seeing my kids have been my biggest promoters, my daughters, she's in the school being like, my dad's an author. She is my best PR person wow. by far. So he's super excited to have his name on the cover. And my daughter and I have already talked about how we'll be working on something together, too.
0: Are you guys splitting the the revenue that comes out of it, too?
1: Well, yes, but he doesn't realize it. So part of it will just go straight into his education fund. So cool. yes, but he doesn't, he, he won't actually be able to see those proceeds for a couple of years, but he will be getting some of it for sure.
0: That's cool. Full circle moment with you and your dad in the oil shop. Exactly. And how you guys get exactly. to work on a project together as well exactly.
1: too. Yeah. So he'll be getting some, some royalty payments and that's, that's the other part of it. And it's just, and again, I think it was the same conversation where it's about building that legacy, right? Like these are things that I could leave behind. I don't know how many 10 cent, 50 cent payments my my grandkids are going to get, but if they get one, if I'm able to give them one royalty payment, then that's, that's a win. Again, that's another win in my book. So I like these ideas of building some, you know, some IP that they can, that they can have and add that to the estate that I'll be leaving behind. Yeah, man, between
0: sports practice and parent-teacher conferences and things like that, you still found a way to go out and write a book as well. You know, Richest Man in Babylon as the revised to this, but also your your own self-titled book, Your Kids, Their Money. Tell me a little bit about the book. If someone picked it up, either soon-to-be parent or new parents, what can they expect from reading it?
1: Sure. So I've already talked about how in my experience, like I had you know, access to the information on how to save and how to earn. But it was those other pieces that I was missing on wealth creation, insurance, taxation, investing, all of those pieces and how you can talk to a child about that. So that's the rationale. And that was my why behind why I wrote this book was to give parents those tools, those tips, the language, how they can talk to their kids about these subjects, how they can teach these concepts to their kids. If they themselves aren't comfortable, you know, understanding or with any of these subjects, this is a way for them to also get comfortable with these subjects and then have some fun activities that they can do with their kids, whether it be, you know, games they can play or other books that they can read to their kids. So it's a, it's really a guidebook to help parents teach their kids financial literacy. But as I was mentioning before with the richest man in Babylon, you know, no one really wants to read less and less and less. And so I try to incorporate a lot of my stories into the book as well. You know, you can jump into it. It's like I said, it's a resource book, so you can jump into any section if you're like, i you know, my kids asking me about investing. I don't know what to say, or they're asking me about credit cards, or I don't know what to talk about. So you can jump into any section. It's kind of a standalone, but at the same time, if you read it from end to end, it's kind of the story arc of my life as well. How I started out really curious about money, some of my debt troubles as well, and then kind of where I am now, where I'm you know trying to give back as much as I can, and and talking about how you know there's a need to also include you know gratitude and appreciation into our financial literacy education, especially with kids.
0: Yeah, and it's a sneaky book. As a adult as well, I definitely picked up some things about personal finance, reading it through. Of course, I was like looking at it from the lens of being a parent and teaching my kid. But then I was like, oh, that was a great breakdown. Like when you're breaking down credit cards earlier in our conversation, when you're talking through your story with credit cards as well, but your reframe of looking at it as a loan and everything in that Realm. I mean, I really enjoyed the read. The chapters just flew by. I'd be like reading through, and I'm like, oh, chapter's done already. What the heck? And then, like, yeah. you would grab me and we would start talking about something else. And I was like flipping through, hitting another chapter.
1: Well, that's great. I'm glad to hear you liked it. And I tried to make it that way because, again, it's written for parents. I'm a parent. I know we don't have a lot of time. So I tried to make it really. Condensed. There's no fluff in there. And there was some stuff that I wanted to put in there and I was like, nope, that doesn't work. That's extra. Fill it on my website or something. But I tried to make it really tight, really succinct. And I really tried to make it so that it's fun to read.
0: Clifton, if somebody resonated with something you said today, they want to reach out, they want to get connected, where's the best place for them to go and learn more about who you are?
1: Sure. So my website, I've got all of my resources on there. I've got worksheets for kids. I've got my blog has lots of the tools and tips that I talk about. So you could find wherever I am if you go to my website, which is Cliftoncorbin.com.
0: Awesome. Go to my final question for you. If you had the opportunity to teach a 16-week class to a group of graduating college seniors on a topic that isn't normally covered in the classroom, what would you teach and how would you teach it?
1: It would be, oh, how would I teach it? That's a challenge, but the, co- the conversation would be about wealth and lifestyle. I want young people to understand that wealth is money that isn't spent. So I picked that up. I don't know if you've read The Psychology of Money, but that's another phenomenal book. And I love how the the author puts it like wealth is money that's not spent. But I think young people often confuse wealth for, you know, stuff. So I teach a course on how you need to focus on wealth creation, because that's what will give you that financial independence. But in doing so, you also need to manage lifestyle creep. You know, we need to find a way to get comfortable having a certain set of lifestyle without that. I think other conversations you might've had is about like delayed gratification and all of that. But it's not, for me, it's not just about delayed gratification. It's about finding a way to be comfortable with a lifestyle where once, because especially for young people, you know, you start making money, you feel very comfortable. You know, you've got your rent paid for, you've got your food, you're happy, you're enjoying life, and then you make more money. So then you start buying more and then you like upgrade your apartment and then you, the car that you had, that's been working fine. You now need to get, you know, a nicer car, what have you. And you increase your, your spending based on the amount of income you have. And if you can avoid that, and I think, you know, that age group, especially that young adult age group, that cohort, they have so much opportunity, right? Like they've got so much of their career ahead of them. They've got all this window with regards to investing. And if they can manage their lifestyle in a way that they can actually feel comfortable with what they have, as opposed to feeling this need to increase and add more to it, it will set them up for so much success. So the course would be, about what is wealth, why is wealth important, how do you manage with what you have, and then how do you keep being comfortable with what you have? And then what do you do with what is left over? So taking that, investing that and building upon that. And that would be if I had the opportunity, that would be my course.
0: I would love to be enrolled in that course. I have no doubt in my mind that you would be a phenomenal professor. Oh, thank you. Once again, Clifton Corbin folks, author of Your Kids, Their Money, but you know, more importantly, amazing dad. Clifton, it's been a pleasure, man.
1: Justin, it's been great. Thank you so much for this and thank you so much for what you're doing. I really appreciate it because the struggle is real.
0: It is so freaking real, man. All right, guys, thanks for tuning into another episode. And this was a marathon of an episode, but amazing. I I am just inspired to be a dad after the episode with Clifton. That was so much fun. He's so intentional and engaged with parenting. And that is exactly who I would want to be if I end up being a dad myself. So he really reassured me, regardless if I feel like I'm ready or not, that I can figure it out if I want to be a parent. And there are so many great resources and people to support you in your life that will help you out if you got to learn things as you go. So I hope you guys have an amazing 2023. Let's get after it. Let's get our goals here. Thanks for tuning into the episode. Here's what you can expect next on The Struggle is Real. It's worth taking a step back and really setting just this minimum threshold that you want to start with. It might just be 10 minutes of walking every day. Yeah, that's the key, right? It's just find something that you know is probably a little bit outside of
1: your super comfort zone, right? You don't want
0: to go out there and just come back and feel rosy. Like you want it to feel like you've actually exerted some effort because I think that's where it keeps bringing you back, right? It's that feeling of accomplishment. I can keep going in the right direction. Hey everybody, thanks for listening. If you like this conversation today, be sure to subscribe so you'll be notified about new episodes. I'm your host, Justin Peters. Thanks for tuning in.